Well, good evening, Saints. How are you? Good Look, we've had a fantastic time studying. We're overwhelmed. It's an audacious task before us. We will not torture the sacred nature of what we're doing here by endlessly arguing about whether Daniel was a eunuch or just unique. I can say that I'm happy that we successfully survived American Airlines and are here tonight with as much anticipation for this as I'm sure you have. Your homework was to read the book of Daniel specifically without utilizing commentaries. This is an important aspect of our study together. It's among our highest goals to equip you biblically with an aptitude for how to interpret, how to think, how to receive revelation, instead of skipping presumptuously straight to the what you should think stage. Our hope is in avoiding this temptation to just jump Wow, I didn't say that right. <laughs> Surreptitiously to answers, secretly sneaking off, consulting the commentary, that uh, you'll be better served in your personal development of answers. There's something that we all have to avoid. We have to avoid being scared to look like we need to learn something, like how to enunciate a certain word. All right, so the problem is, is that all too often, insecure Christians have consulted the answers presented by others before they have properly considered the questions, wrestled with the text for themselves, oh, yeah. and arrived at revelation that is attested to by the heavens and the canon itself. While a person's motives are not often apparent, even to themselves, especially this is usually done out of insecurity and in an effort to conceal the individual's great need for growth and progress wow. spiritually. Wow. But in this house, we are going to go on the journey together, Amen. and we're going to do that transparently Amen. as we dig into yeah. the book. Can we all learn together? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It will become evident to all who follow our work that we ourselves are progressing and maturing in our understanding even as we attempt to teach this material. Let me ask you something tonight. Hasn't it always been easiest to accept the first well-structured, maybe logical argument that you come across? Every single time. But the scripture itself warns us against this practice in the book of Proverbs. We wanted to read Proverbs 18, verse 17 to you tonight. Actually, let somebody else read it. Come on. Give us a chance to catch our breath. We've been weaving in and out of traffic. (laughs) Come on, Adebola, let's go with it. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. The only thing wrong with that is it's not just in lawsuits. Yeah. It's always the first one that presents his case is the one that seems right the first time. Always. Until you hear a second opinion, and then your brain starts working. Oh, my goodness, I didn't consider a second perspective. Well, 
if we do our job job well tonight in serving you, then tonight you will walk away with conclusions, but more importantly, you will have a firm grasp of the questions that are still remaining in our study. This is going to allow you to personally ask the revealer of mysteries. Somebody say, I get to personally ask. I get to personally ask. It's going to enable you to personally ask the revealer of mysteries to lend you his thoughts. And guess what? That's going to make you truly a rich person. Amen. So as we begin tonight, we want to borrow an essential attitude from the Bereans. Yeah. Peyton Parsons is going to get Acts 17.11 for us. So Acts 17.11, which Pastor Mike Hutchinson is going to read for us. Yeah, Pastor Hutchinson's here. He squeezed all those biceps in that tiny shirt. Seventeen eleven. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So essentially, we are telling you not to accept the things that you hear from us until you have taken on the noble task of examining them for yourselves. Can we agree that that's what we're going to do? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to examine the scriptures because this is a noble task. Listen to what Proverbs 25, verse 2 says. Brother JJ, if you would get that for me. Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. All right, so let's face it together for just a minute. Considering what JJ just read, the glory of God to conceal a matter but it's the glory of kings to search it out. If a commentary already had it printed, or your favorite YouTube blogger already made a video on it, <laughs> then it cannot be a secret thing of God. You guys tracking with me for a minute here? Yeah. Yeah. We want you to feel the kingly blessing that we feel when the Lord of glory shares his thoughts with us. Saints, in our study in Daniel, that's our endeavor. That each of us would know what it is to tap into the spirit as we are searching the word and have his thoughts come into us because that is a kingly pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, at the end of your search, it is always a good idea to consult the works of other godly men. Everybody with me on that? Yeah. Yeah. Tested and approved the revelation that we feel we're consulting other men. This is how we see whether our treasure compares and matches up to the things that we know have already been revealed. This is how we test against the other household servants that all work for the king. Now so, this evening. So you wrestle, and then after you believe that the Lord has shown you something in his word, then you consult a commentary. But how many of you has your understanding of Daniel been most strongly impacted by the first presentation that you heard of it by some famous teacher. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you've limited yourself to only what that teacher knows. Yeah. The, we want to begin in the Hebrew construction of the Bible. Doesn't that sound like a great place to start? Yeah. yeah. Justin, help us. All right. So here's a picture that you are very, very familiar with. And we want to remind you of the Jewish order, the Hebrew construction of 
the Bible. So the Tanakh is made up of the Law, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Law, first five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. The Nevi'im, we have the former prophets. Then we have the latter prophets, which are the what scholars call the major, even though they're not really major compared to the others, and the Book of the Twelve. Then we have the writings, the Ketuvim. Now notice that Daniel is in the writings, not the prophets. See, this is common to Jews who are learning the Bible because this is the Jewish order of the Bible. This is not common in Christian circles. Christian circles put Daniel in the prophets. Now, as you are thinking about that, we want you to remember that the construction of the Hebrew Bible was endorsed by the Mashiach himself. Yeah, we have another slide to show you. This is another slide about the Tanakh, but we wanted to highlight Luke 24, 44 on the right side of the slide. This is Jesus speaking, and it says, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. Right here we have Jesus referring to the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. He's endorsing them. The law of Moses is referred to as the Torah. Again, the prophets are referred to as the Nevi'im. And while you think of the Psalms as just simply a book of the Bible, we wanted to show you and read to you what the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with semantic domains, that's quite a title, <laughs> says about the Greek word psalmos, which is translated as psalms in Luke 24. It says, a section of Hebrew scripture interpreted as the third section of the Old Testament Hebrew canon headed by the book of Psalms. And then it quotes Luke 24:44. So as we continue... The three areas of the Hebrew Bible are designed to affect the three-part design of man. We have another slide for you. The Torah is designed to affect the heart, the Nevi'im, the prophets, the soul, and the Ketuvim, the writings, your strength. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. For many of you, this is a review, but it's always good to be reminded yeah. how complex yeah. and beautiful the Word of God is. Yeah. So what does the Torah affect? Heart. 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 What do the Nevi'im affect? Soul. And what are the Ketuvim supposed to instruct? Strength. So is Daniel considered a prophetic book? No. no. No, it is a writings. This means that when you are reading Daniel, it is designed to inform, direct, and strengthen your walk with the Lord and your love for him. Yeah. Now, this next slide will further this idea by summarizing the historical aspects of the three sections of the Tanakh. So as we go through this, I just want to take a second to comment on some personal interactions. Even in our extraordinary body of excellent students, Many times I've heard the words, I'm glad you guys are teaching us eschatology. 
But I, I really don't focus on that in my studies because I don't know how to apply it to my daily life. <laughs> in context with the prophets, I would ask you, how is it with your soul? Because it is necessary to interact with the prophets for your soul to be in right standing before God. Now, Daniel ought to be the death nail to the idea that as a Christian, we're just going to focus on the Bible basics and let the theologians worry about eschatology. Because Daniel is directed at your strength, church. Your ability to walk out God's commands is dependent upon books just like this. How many of your personal walks are strengthened by debating endlessly what a little horn is? Probably not at all. There are larger themes in this book that you need to grab hold of. This next slide will illustrate that. The Torah covers the creation and founding of Israel as a people. As he molded what he wanted their heart to be like. What the genesis of everything they did to be like. The Nevi'im covers entering into the promised land. Taking up the inheritance that God had given them. All the way into captivity. There are unified themes in the prophets that we've been covering together. This evening's an introduction to a book in the Ketuvim. How to live a faithful life in one's historical context. Man, it's difficult to express how important that may be to us in the coming days. Yeah. We just went under a 10-month study of Jeremiah. That should mean that you were familiar with the historical context of the book of Daniel. Yeah. Because it's subsequent to these events and there are overlapping ages. Yeah. Can you imagine how much you would need to be strengthened from on high to endure that kind of historical context? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so... One of my favorite verses on this subject from the Ketuvim is Psalm 119, verses 49 and 50. When you're in difficult circumstances, remember this one. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. More than just predictive details of how something will unfold that most of the church doesn't believe they'll be here for, tragically. The book of Daniel contains promises that preserve the life of a man that is in a furnace. That preserve the life of a man who is in a lion's den. Promises that no matter what situation you are in, God's outcome is still solid for you. There are just things that we must go through to get to that outcome. Amen. Daniel is more than a book of interpreted dreams. Daniel is a book of promise that preserves the life of the Jewish people in their sufferings. Understanding this context of the book will better position you to grasp the purpose of the eschatological dreams that take place within the book. They were not there just to titillate the intellect. Yeah. They are there so that when you are experiencing the domination of foreign, Gentile, beastly powers, you know that God's promise for your nation is still intact. Amen. That is the purpose. Amen. So as we embark on this exciting journey together, yeah. this is going are to be... Are you all excited about yeah. it? Yeah. This is going to be an exciting journey. Journey. We're going to dive into things that are so debated, so deep, but we're going to come to it together. We're going to come to conclusions together. But before we do that, it's fitting that we start with the perspective of the Mashiach. 
on the importance of the book of Daniel. Did you know that Jesus talked about the importance of the book of Daniel? Yeah. Well, this comes from the famous eschatological passage of Matthew 24, verse 15. Which, he, by the way, is also in the New Testament law, not prophets. <laughs> this passage was meant to form your heart so that when you got to the writings, you would know how to carry it out. Yeah. Without forming your heart right, you'll never understand what Jesus is talking about. Caleb, can you get Matthew 24, 15 for us? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Say that again. Let the reader understand. See, you are going to discover a repeating historical pattern that is conveyed in the book of Daniel. That began before Daniel, it continued through his life, and it extended well beyond his life. In fact, Jesus expected his listeners to have read the book of Daniel. That's why he's relating to it. Hey, what was your homework this week? Read the book of Daniel. All right. Now all we have to do is understand it. Amen. Jesus not only expected you to read it, he expected the book of Daniel to inform his followers in the coming historical context that extended beyond his present ministry. Jesus knew there was a context coming that was like Daniel's context. Now, if this were not true, if the events in Daniel were still not in the future for Jesus and his followers, then Jesus would not have said, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation. He wouldn't have put that in the future and he wouldn't have said, when you see it. It is clear that Daniel's revelation extended beyond the first advent or the coming of Mashiach. In short, Jesus assumed that you and all other believers would be intimately familiar with the book of Daniel and that you would understand its cyclical patterns for your strengthening in the coming historical context that all believers must endure. Come on. So we're trying to help you tonight a little bit to understand that the events of Daniel did not happen a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> that the events of Daniel were not completed in the days of uh, Messiah's first advent, his first coming. We want you to understand today that the events of Daniel and their fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of those events is still in our future, which should begin to stir you about the importance of studying the book of Daniel in its entirety, because those fulfillments are still to come. And Jesus' own words proves that to us. Let me put that in a practical sense as Nick prepares to go through a slide with you. Have you ever been in a situation and you were greatly discouraged by it and then you realize, wait, we've been in this situation before? Daniel is a series of, wait, we've been in this situation before and in fact, we know we're going to go through it several more times. So men can argue endlessly over the abomination that causes desolation. There's been more than one. (laughs) Okay. There have been more than one beastly, Gentile, oppressing nation. But the truth still remains. 
that the kingdom of God will be established in Israel. Amen. That is the overriding, overarching point. And as a Ketuvim, you can take so much from that. You've gone through a tragedy and you survived it and God's promise still remains for you. You can know when you go to the next tragedy, not knowing how many more there'll be, that God's promise will still remain for you. Yeah. All right, so we have a slide that is going to help us understand some of the languages that are used within the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 1 is written in the Hebrew language. But then from chapters 2 to chapters 7, we have a language shift in the text. And it's written in Aramaic. After chapter 7, there's a switch back. Somebody say switch back. Switch back. There's a switch back to the language of the Hebrews. This becomes very important in the weeks to come. But tonight, we wanted to enumerate for you the re one of the main reasons why we saw it as important as we were studying. This shows us that the thematic elements and the book of Daniel itself begins and ends with the Jewish people. Yeah, and God wanted it to be written that way, and he wanted it to be shown as beginning and ending with his people. Yeah. The initial chapter and the final chapters are written in Hebrew. This alone begins to convey the special kind of revelation that's given to the Jewish people. Come on. Who wants to get Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20? Hayes, get that for us, brother. 147, 19, and 20. He has revealed his word to Jacob. of the word of God, the more you study it, you see these patterns that the book of Daniel starts with the Jewish people, ends with the Jewish people, and here in Psalm 147, we see that he has revealed his word to his people and no other nation. Yeah. Now, that special revelation brings with it special opposition, <laughs> and it brings satanic hatred, yeah. and we've seen this not only in the prophets and throughout history, but we're seeing it today. Now, the book of Daniel brings with it enormous pressure on the Jews who have been entrusted with the Torah. The opening chapter introduces you to four men by name. Four Jewish men by four name. Four Jewish men by name. And they are all Jews that are pressed between two allegiances and opposing kingdoms. Woo. They have to choose loyalty to the king of the universe or the king of their locality. No, come on. Y'all need to think about that for a minute in our age of mass mandates and corona shutdowns and, I don't know, praying for the Brandon administration. Can you not take encouragement and strengthening from reading a historical account of men that had revelation from God and they were at odds with the commands of a local King. And having to choose between that, I don't know, like February of last year when we had to decide whether we would give up the great assembly for the great joke that was being portrayed, or we would stand where the word said we must stand. Well, the book of Daniel opens in that setting. And what's the first thing that happens? They're brought into captivity and their names are changed. Their functions and their identities were being assaulted. 
changed from Jewish names to names that honored the gods of the nation that they were in. Kind of like when somebody wants to change your pronoun. <laughs> and one thing I love about it is they were faithful and loyal to the king of, uni of the universe all the way down to their diet. Come on. They didn't yeah. dare defile themselves because of their loyalty to their true king. Even though they were subjugated to a locality or a king over a locality, that didn't change where their allegiance lies. Let's interact with that for a second. Do you want to get it right on the big issues? Yes. 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 Do you sometimes think that the little issues might not be as important? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Even what these men ate was important to God. And the stand that they took for God in their own diets as directed by the Torah is how this book opens. What does that tell us about the little things in our lives? Yeah. Little things like a testing period of 10 days. And what does it result in? They're 10 times better than everyone around them. I don't know if it was really about food because we have these silly diets that really aren't biblical anyways. They're more fads that are proliferated and people follow them. The reason they were 10 times better is because they were loyal to the king of the universe. Amen. And he blessed them for their faithfulness. Now, the context of the first chapter fits the purpose of the Ketuvim. Do you remember? It's how to live your life uh, faithfully in a historical context. This is why we don't read the book of Judges to find out how to live faithfully. Why? Because everyone was doing as they saw fit. And it's a warning to our souls because it's in the prophets. But here you can see in the first chapter, it begins under Nebuchadnezzar and mentions Daniel's ministry until the first year of Cyrus. It's important as we move forward to understand that the chapters are sequential but involve anachronisms. Here's what we mean. All right, so everybody look at the slide with me for just a moment. You're going to want a picture of this one. As you notice, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all makes pretty linear sense, right? Yeah. Then it jumps to 7. Whoa. Then 8. Then chapter 5. Then chapter 9. And then we come back around for chapter 6. As we're going to help you with this throughout the book. But for now, you might put this in your notes. Because when Daniel is speaking to Belteshazzar, for instance, in chapter 5, Daniel has already had the vision that was recorded in chapter 7. Wow. Engage to, with that. To explain that a little bit as we work through this, Daniel covers a period of history with some of the major events that happens with a king, and then there's a chapter that goes back and tells you a revelation that he received in the midst of that reign. So when Daniel is speaking to Belteshazzar and he's bold as all get out because he's a man of God, he basically says, you're not a tenth of the man your father was. You're prideful, arrogant, and going to die this night. He has already had the vision in Daniel 7 of what would happen to the kingdoms and then changing powers. Be honest. How many of you knew that? No. Well, good. That's why we're doing this together. <laughs> we didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, you can't imagine the difficulties we've had in the chronology of the book, and it's really not that complicated. We're just used to reading, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But if you, if you take to heart what is there, you will read this book differently. Because 
How many of you would know from many, many Tekel Parsons exactly what's going to unfold in history? Okay, only Peyton in this room would know what was going to happen. But if you consider that he had already had the vision of Daniel 7, he already had insight into this. I'm not saying that the Lord didn't interpret it for him. Of course he did. But it was not simply that God put his word in his mouth and it came out. It was based on the previous revelations that he had had. It was based on his study of the word already. You're going to see that in every chapter. So when we get to something, we're going to point out these anachronisms for you so that you have a better understanding of how Daniel came to the conclusions that he did. One last note on that. You know that concept in Amos? He does nothing without revealing it to his servants, the prophets. You're going to see how having an idea of God's overall plan helps Daniel very literally stand in the moment and speak what he needs to speak because he knows the ultimate outcome. Come yeah. on, no. When you're thinking through this, we've, we've highlighted for you that seven came before five. You know what else came before five? Chapter eight. There are hundreds of years of history that Daniel understood before he stood before Belshazzar. And him knowing that gives him a kind of confidence and a boldness that is funny. It almost borders on hubris. Uh, chapter 5 kind of has this tenor of, you know, I knew your, your dad or granddad. He, he was a king, but you, <laughs> yeah, you're not much of a king. In fact, it's about to be taken away from you. It's also astounding to me what Daniel didn't tell him. <laughs> he, he felt no need to explain all that was going to happen after all the guy would be dead tomorrow. But this historical context and how Daniel acts faithfully in it it, it's vastly strengthening when you begin to grasp it like that instead of just a technical manual for how you think seven bowls, seven trumpets, and seven seals will play out. What we're doing right now is we're walking through the chapters with a few highlights. We're doing that for a bunch of reasons. We want you to start to see some themes in their connections. For whatever reason, people like to dissect the book of Daniel. What we would like you to do is connect the book of Daniel. Yeah. Okay, we, we actually believe that the right way to understand this is in the whole, the broadest picture. This way you don't end up in an eclectic group of little internet fanatics promoting a pet idea that is really not consistent with the biblical narrative, uh, which is all too popular these days. Yeah. Would you all like to move on to chapter 2? Yeah. yeah. All right, so moving on to chapter 2. We've already heard about chapter 1. They felt that increasing pressure as the people of God, as the Jews who had received the Torah. They're feeling that pressure to assimilate, and yet they stand firm, even in the little things. Come on. As we move on to chapter 2, these themes start to build, and they are amazing. The second chapter of Daniel contains a vision, and this vision is only given to a Gentile king. And only the Jewish people are able to interpret that dream. So the dream's given to a Gentile king, but the only person that can interpret it, or people, are the Jewish people. It reminds me of that saying, I can explain this to you, but I can't understand <laughs> right. it for you. Now just a, a, a little flavor here. That vision was of a rock cut out of a mountain that will crush all other kingdoms. Are you guys familiar with that vision? Yeah. Oh, yes. Read about it this week? Yeah. Now, a little uh, insight into this. 
Mountains in the Bible are often nations. And this mountain that is cut is Israel. And the rock is the Jewish Messiah that will crush all Gentile kingdoms that set themselves up. And it will fill the earth. That is an important strengthening hope for exiles to faithfully hold on to in the historical setting of Daniel. Could you feel that pressure that they might be under? And then God gives a Gentile a vision, but the interpretation comes to the people that are under pressure. Could you see how that would be a hopeful thing, that there is a rock coming to crush the kingdoms that are oppressing them? That gave them hope to faithfully hold on to the promise of God. Now, there are obvious Joseph parallels as a repeating pattern through this. The God of Israel is the revealer of mysteries and not the Gentile magicians and their foreign gods. Joseph having a dream but not seeing it fulfilled but has to walk through that increasing pressure as God reveals more along to the Jewish people along the way. Now, this kingdom is not merely a spiritual one. Do I have all your eyes, everybody breathing? This rock that was cut, this is not merely a spiritual kingdom. And that is going to be huge, massively important as we continue. But rather it is a real, physical, Jewish kingdom that will crush all others before it. All Gentile kingdoms. The Jewish men involved in the chapter, they lived in obedience to a Jeremiah 29 type of setting. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, even while they're in the middle of getting destroyed. They lived in obedience to that Jeremiah 29 kind of setting, and they worked faithfully in a team. You don't just see Daniel getting the interpretation. Who does he go to? He goes to his three brothers. Then chapter 2 ends with a Jewish man being exalted over all other spiritualists and is recognized as having superior spiritual insight. How could that be? Well, he is faithful to his God. They are faithful to their God under pressure, and they have superior spiritual insight because they are crying out to the revealer of mysteries. If you're in any particular difficult trial, but God reveals to you what the end will be, and he does it from the beginning of the trial, Is that strengthening to you? That is what is happening for the Jewish people. And when we say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and when we say Daniel, or in the book of Daniel, we read the word saints, you need to avoid the temptation to take that in the broadest possible interpretation. Meaning that 600 years after Daniel, we would find out that Gentiles could be included in what was going on and read that back into the text. (laughs) Understand first the only way that they could take it. Was Babylon a real kingdom oppressing them? Yes. 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 The kingdoms that came after Babylon that oppressed them, were they real, physical, tangible kingdoms oppressing them? Then it is implausible to believe that anyone would read this and think that the rock cut out of the mountain that filled the whole earth would then simply just be a mystical, spiritual kingdom. That's an important understanding that we hope will build for you as we go through the book. So when men have spiritualized this kingdom in the past, 
It has led to all kinds of insane doctrines and has neglected the fact that there is going to be a very physical, earthly kind of rule and reign that Messiah and Israel will indeed have. And it's still to come, guys. It hasn't happened yet. That kind of framework helps to clarify the prophetic natures that we begin to read in Daniel. We also, as we're moving into chapter 3 together, you're going to start seeing some patterns in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. In the third chapter, the Jews, they're enlightened by the Torah, and they're oppressed because of the revelation given to them by the God of Israel. And guess what? They have to choose between obedience either to the king of the universe, who they belong to, or obedience to the king of their locality, who has stood up in direct opposition to their real king. This is a threat of assimilation, a threat of destruction. That is a really real physical kind of threat that happened in their lives. Do you understand how assimilation is as big of a threat as destruction? Yeah. yeah. So, no, no, man, they, they'd live. Yes, but they would cease to be the distinct special of God honoring the revelation that they alone had received. Yeah. Assimilation is as big of a threat to the people of God as physical destruction is. Yeah. Yeah. And they're being faced with a choice between assimilation, which destroys their promises, or destruction, which could feel to destroy your promises. That is the same choice being offered in chapter 3 as in chapter 1. Yep. Yeah. And so as you're reading up to this point, even in the first three chapters of Daniel, you're already formulating a pattern. God gives his nation, his people, the Jews, revelation. Then that revelation is tested, tested in the fire even, like we see in that chapter. And then what happens? God comes and he delivers his people, and all of the Gentile nations can see the deliverance yeah. of a Jewish king yeah. with his people. Amen. You're already beginning to see that pattern. So Jacob's trouble is a necessary part of the process. <laughs> the Israel, Israel does not get to receive a revelation from God and jump straight to the deliverance of God. That revelation is meant as a hope in the times of difficulty and persecution so that the rock of Daniel 2 can be cut out and take over the whole earth. You know, one of the amazing things about Daniel 3 is that it ends with an edict against the very people that oppressed <laughs> the Jewish people for their revelation. Yeah. It's a neat thing that God can allow his people to be in a fiery furnace precisely because he wants to then take the oppressors and show them to be wrong before the whole world. Yeah. It's a repeating pattern. Did you know in the Bible that Egypt is also called the fiery furnace? Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea of Jacob's trouble is about the ultimate trouble. The last time they're in trouble because they've been in trouble in every century that there's ever been. Yeah. But they've been delivered every time. That's right. And the pattern is when they do not assimilate, God will not allow them to be destroyed. And he will take those that oppress them and have those very same men issue an edict to the whole world. No, nope, their God is the real God. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens repeatedly through Daniel. Yeah. 
pressure to assimilate or be destroyed, and they stand on their convictions based on a revelation from God, and God then has the very same Gentile power that oppressed them declare, nope, their God is God. Amen. Think of how good the God of Israel is. Yeah. Even in the midst of the fire, he still sends one like the son of the gods into the fire yeah. with the Jewish people to help bring them out and deliver them. Who is he with? The Jewish people. When you say, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there was a fourth in the fire, and you sing the song, there's a fourth in the fire with me, and you get really excited about it, you're missing the point of the story for the people that both wrote it and received it. It's that they were Jews in the fire, and the whole Gentile world was against them, but one like the Son of God stood with them. Yes. I'm not saying that it can't apply to you. I'm saying that you make a terrible mistake applying it to you without Israel. You make a terrible mistake applying it to you before you have applied it to Israel. You miss the point of the Bible. That's a good one. Because the Bible is not just Jewish-centric or Israeli-centric. The Bible is Israeli-dependent. Because God loves his people. And he also loves those that he welcomed in as wrapped in. So that was chapter 3. As you consider chapters 4 and 5, the Gentile nations are viewed as beasts. Say beasts. Beasts. Unable to understand the revelation that the Jewish people have been given. Although hey, why are we saying beasts? I, I, you guys have gnats and flies circulating around your mouths tonight. You look like monkeys staring at a computer, and I want to make sure you're following me. Why are we saying the Gentile nations are viewed as beasts? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Lost his mind like a beast. Yeah. The king of the world, the Gentile king of the world, became like a beast. Yeah. That's an important detail. Introduced in the book of Daniel, carried all the way through the book of Revelation. I'm sorry, Peyton, will you yeah. pick back up for us? Nebuchadnezzar is a beast. And although the Gentiles rule over the Jews, the kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms will be Jewish. Amen. Now, there's a beautiful truth displayed in the humbling of beasts. Nebuchadnezzar, in that he acknowledges the God of the Jewish people, and he becomes a proto-evangelist of sorts. Come on. Now, there's even hints of Isaiah's description of a Gentile king or Gentile kings aiding the sons of Israel in this chapter. Wow. Did you catch it? Gentile kings aiding Israel in God's divine plan, where Nebuchadnezzar really, really uh, missteps is he stood against God's divine plan. And whether the Lord fell on him or he fell on the Lord, it did not end up well. He ended up eating grass and doing all kinds of crazy <laughs> things, just like a beast. Oh, However, that's chapter 4. In chapter 5... Before we get to 5, Peyton, I, I'm sorry, you missed a key detail in the notes that we, we need to get. The very man who is opposing God's plan by opposing his people ends up writing a chapter of the Bible. And in that Bible chapter, he becomes a kind of proto-evangelist when you think about it. Yeah. Because he sends it out to all tribes, all tongues, all nations, and says the God of these Jewish men is the real God. Yeah. That is an important yes. detail, and it's a huge contrast with this despicable, impotent, Joints of his loins loosened 
son in the next chapter. In chapter 5, his son, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, which is Daniel, but Belshazzar, he does not humble himself and even does blasphemous things that result in his assassination, taking the things that were plundered from the temple in Israel and having a party with them. And the Lord wasn't having any of that. Now the message is clear. Those Gentiles who humble themselves can find refuge in the God of Israel, while those who refuse will die. And for effect, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this again. Those Gentiles who humble themselves can find refuge in the God of Israel. 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 While those who refuse will die. There's salvation in no other God. This message that the God of Israel is in control of even the oppressing Gentile beastly kingdoms is profoundly strengthening to a believing community in exile. Look, so as we get into chapter 6, and you can see a chronology slide on the screen, they're changing kingdoms. But a principle that we want you to hold on to from chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that we have two kings, one of which repents and has right relationship to God's people, God's plan, and is proclaiming to the earth a message about a king that is above all gods. The other one of the same lineage in the same nation does not repent and God puts him to death. This is a pattern that you're going to see in other kings because Daniel lives through multiple administrations, if you will. Multiple dynasty changes. And he is still around, and God's pattern shows up in each of these kings, and that will become evident. Look, as we move to chapter 6, on that note of repeating themes, you're going to see something that is very, very similar to the third chapter, where there was a fiery furnace. The Jewish people must go into lion's dens. Hey, think about the time of Jacob's trouble. When you hear in Jeremiah about the wrath that is coming upon them. They're described as being torn apart by lions at times. Mm -hmm. Well, Daniel was thrown into a very literal lion's den. (laughs) And a portion of the Gentile rulers will honor God and reverence God because Daniel is delivered through that time of trouble. In fact, I find it a bit ironic that a royal son of the tribe of Judah is thrown into pagan lion's den and he walks out all right. His oppressors, on the other hand, were thrown in the lion's den later and they did not walk out around. You see the repeating theme of contrast between the Gentile oppression and Jewish deliverance and the ultimate proclamation from even Gentile monarchs that the God of the Jews is the real God? That's the point of the book of Daniel. And wouldn't that be strengthening if if you were in this position? Yes. Well, you might need to get better acquainted with it because if you're going to claim to have yes. a part of Israel's future inheritance, Woo. then you certainly have a part of the coming trials by fire and lion's den. Yeah. Any theology that says something else is both cowardly and incorrect. Come on now. You will never participate in the blessings of Israel without participating in the tribulation of Israel. Come on. Come on. And the great stain on the Christian community is that we have tried to usurp every blessing given to Israel while not standing with Israel in the very same trial. This is corrected in this community and in the churches of the One Association. We're going to have to go much further with it. We're going to have to learn how to do this. That's too good not to key in on one more time. As a result of being thrown in the lion's den, 
and God delivering him through that situation, portions of the Gentile rulers turned and began to honor God and give him reverence. Look, if we want to change nations, if we want to do one life, one family, one nation, it will be by being put in the same kind of situations that Israel always has been. So once again, the prosperity of the Jewish people is envied by Gentiles who do not like that Daniel has been favored. And they oppress the Jew by working to trap him in these situations. Guys, this is so similar to the book of Esther. The repeating theme is always the same. There is envy among the nations. Even in Psalm 68, mountains of Bashan, why do you look on Jerusalem, my mountain Sinai, with envy? This is the pattern that God has been laying out, and he proves his superiority through his people. The God of the Jews is exalted and will establish his physical, real, earthly kingdom through his people. Interesting, like in chapter 4, chapter 6 contains another letter from a Gentile king to the known world proclaiming the greatness of the God of Israel. It's a little shorter, but it has almost some of these same exact lines. There is a God who's eternal, one who's above the gods that we've been serving. And I want the known world to know about the God of Daniel. Come on. Have you ever read this concept by a first century Jew that you're to love your enemies? He didn't just pull that out of a vacuum. Daniel's loving care of Nebuchadnezzar resulted in Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Daniel's loving care of the monarch who reluctantly allowed him to be thrown in a lion's den, their affection for each other is clear in the passage, and it results in the conversion of the monarch. See, nothing in the Newer Testament can be properly understood without understanding the Older Testament. And I say newer and older because it's not old and obsolete. It's the very foundation that we stand on. Look, Daniel 7, are, are y'all still okay? Y'all yeah. Yeah. Well, normally we hand out hundreds of scriptures and we have you read them and it's very interactive. This is an introduction. We'll do that next week. You were supposed to read this book. Did you not have questions and we're not uh, grappling with the content of the book? We've been doing it for a few weeks. I was sure that there was no way that we would not get to chapter 1 tonight. We would do an introduction and chapter 1. Four or five hours into our study, I realized we couldn't even squeeze in the introduction that I wanted to. (laughs) Chapter 7, in our view, is the highlight of the book. I know everybody loves chapter 9, and there's a lot of good things that we're going to do with that. But chapter 7 is the highlight of the book. And perhaps in the coming week, we'll show you how it's the bottom of a chiastic structure with no parallel. There's a key verse in Daniel Seven that I think we just started to read now. Because you all read it for homework, but just in case you don't have it memorized, let's have somebody stand to their feet and read Daniel 7, 26 and 27. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Come on. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom under the, the whole heavens will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. I want you to consider how profound that revelation is. Daniel knew this before the fifth chapter. I know we're reading in chapter 7, but he knew it before the events of the fifth chapter. We couldn't say that enough. 
This chapter again features the Jewish people receiving a special revelation about the final outcome for Israel. You have so spiritualized this in your mind that you forgot that this is about Israel. You just read it as the kingdom of God and envision us as fat naked babies on clouds and <laughs> lambs lying down with lions. And it is a real physical kingdom every bit as much as the oppressors were. All you have to do is read any of the classic texts about the millennial reign and you'll see it's occurring on earth. You'll see that there's still commerce, there's fishing. I'm even still going to eat barbecue and aged wine with Abraham. It'll be really cool. A physical, real kingdom. Spiritualizing this screws up your understanding of the whole Bible. Is it spiritual? Yes. In the same way that David's kingdom was spiritual and Solomon's kingdom was spiritual, but a real kingdom nevertheless. Again, the Jewish nation must suffer under the wrath of the Gentile beasts, but ultimately they are comforted by the fact that they will usher in the permanent kingdom of God and its dominion will be over every other kingdom. Again, interestingly... This chapter happens to feature the appearance of one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. All of this is in an Israeli context. And if you were Daniel and you received this revelation during a time that your temple had been burned, your city had become desolate, your nation was in servitude, how strengthening would it be to you to know the ultimate outcome of your very real kingdom established by God. Yeah. yeah, let's put that in perspective for a moment. We've been through Chronicles together. We've been through Samuel together. During the days of David and Solomon, there was a literal kingdom that had influence and dominion from the Euphrates River all the way down to the Wadi of Egypt. They had not occupied that much territory, but men feared David's name. And they knew that there was one coming in that line who would save. And then this Israeli of the tribe of Judah, now in captivity in Babylon, hears about a son of man who is coming. I promise you he was not picturing an ethereal kingdom. He was picturing one exactly like David, but greater in every way, who would drive back these nations that held them captive. Not to mention that when Jesus says you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with many holy ones beside him, it's in the context of not crushing a Judean leadership, which is how you read it, but crushing all kingdoms and establishing the actual Jewish monarchy forever and ever. That's the context of his statement. Can we move to chapter 8 or are you all bored? All right, you guys ought to be thoroughly blessed by now because I doubt that when you were reading through the book of Daniel, you got all of these insights on your own, right? And thank God that you read it without commentaries because chapter 8 is usually where they start to lead you astray. As our brothers have been saying, this is about a very real kingdom. And if you know how to see, if you know how to see these cyclical patterns being formed, You'll start to see that chapter 8 builds on those themes. It's talking about physical oppressors. Chapter 8 continues the cycle of Gentile beastly nations oppressing the Jewish people that have been given special revelation. These two Gentile beasts are a ram and some kind of a super goat. You guys remember reading about that? 
Yeah, he flies. He, so Super Goat's a good name. He literally floats across from the west to the east and just kind of headbutts this ram and kills him. <laughs> Thankfully, if you read it without commentaries, then you saw that the interpretation is right there in chapter 8, that these two beasts, Gentile kingdoms, were represented. Those two beasts were Medo-Persia and Greece, and they continue the pattern that was established in chapters 4 and 5 with Nebuchadnezzar, who aided the sons of Israel, and his son, Belshazzar, who must die because of his blasphemies. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Medo-Persia is the ram. The goat is Greece. You can see in the historical context that Cyrus and Darius of Medo-Persia, they aid the Jewish people. If you're also reading Nehemiah and Ezra, you see that they aid the building of the temple. But a king of Greece following Alexander the Great, they will die for their blasphemies against the God of Israel. Those coming after the Medo-Persian Empire, they're going to suffer. And so you see this cycle of a Gentile beast that is humbled because of the revelation of the Jewish people. And then coming after them is one that does not humble themselves. And they end up dying because they spurn the revelation of the Jewish people and namely the God of the Jewish people. Are you starting to get what we're talking about of connection rather than dissection? Yeah. See, you, you read, you probably would not find a commentary that makes the connection between Daniel 4 and 5 and those two Gentile rulers and then the kingdoms of Medo-Persia and Greece. But it is the same pattern. One humbles themselves by aiding the Jewish people and the other blasphemes God by resisting the people and is killed for it. Yeah. Okay, That is a repeating theme throughout Daniel. And shockingly... Even in a language the Gentiles of the day all spoke, I bet it sent out a profound message about the God of Israel and how he feels about his people. Yeah. It's a, re it's a repeating theme through Greek history. It's a repeating theme through Roman history. It's a repeating theme through Islamic history and all the way to today's history. As soon as the king rises up and begins to favor the Jewish people, he's blessed by God. But as soon as one rises up after him and begins to spurn the Jewish people, he is destroyed. Now, the point of every chapter in this book, okay. Daniel, from the Ketuvim, is that even though the Jewish people suffer in their historical context, a kingdom will be established by God Amen. through them, through that Jewish people who are suffering in their historical context. Through them, a kingdom will be established. Through them, a king will come to the throne that is ultimately victorious all the way through the last cycle of Gentile beastly nations. <laughs> the reason we're saying it that way is, number one, we can't teach these chapters tonight. It's an overview. We want you to hear the same theme in the chapters. And second is, rather than argue all day and night in an introduction about who the last Gentile beastly kingdom is, maybe we could first set our resolve to understand the point of the book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and if we did that, then maybe God would be gracious to us. And as a community, 
we'll come to some insightful ideas about who the last Gentile beastly kingdom is. Yeah. But I don't want to be a part of the last Gentile beastly yeah. kingdom. Yeah. And we keep saying Gentile beastly kingdom because we want you to understand the book of Revelation as John intended you to. Like a beast coming out of the sea. Yeah, yeah we'll let you sit on that. <laughs> Daniel 9. The end of Daniel chapter 9 has some of the most supernatural prophecies about the future that you will ever read in the Bible. It is absolutely incredible. And because this is such a prominent fact of Daniel chapter 9, most people... Just skip over the first two-thirds of the chapter. But Daniel chapter 9 is so important to teach us how to properly live in our times so that we can lay a good foundation for the future. You see, in Daniel 9, Daniel starts reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And as Daniel's reading, he realizes that there is a future event that's going to happen... At the end of 70 years, there's going to be a type of restoration for the desolation that God had brought upon them. So what happens in Daniel chapter 9? Daniel begins to pray and intercede for the Jewish people, and God Almighty hears his prayer. And what he answers him with is the great revelation at the end of Daniel chapter 9. How might you and I apply this to our own lives? Well, do we need to know eschatology? Do we need to know what's going to happen in the future? The answer is a resounding yes, because then you know how to intercede with the God of the Jews. That's you true. know how to intercede for the Jewish people. Yeah. And guess what? Along the way, he might just give you a revelation that is necessary for the times to come. But the end of chapter 9, Daniel, this Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, He's being entrusted with yet further specific revelation. And it's revelation about heptatic periods, periods of seven. These periods of time that Israel has experienced in the past, that Israel was currently experiencing in their present in Daniel's day, and experiences that would happen in the future in order to complete this cycle of beastly Gentile oppression. Mm. Why do you count by tens? Because the British told us to. <laughs> and maybe it's because they did it on their fingers and toes. I, I don't know. Or the Romans. But as we get to Daniel 9, get familiar with that God did not set up a calendar based on tens. God didn't count in centuries. God counted in sabbatical years. And he taught his people to count in sabbatical years. He taught his people to count by sevens. Most of the ancient Jewish works, like the work of Jubilees, literally counts years by the number of Jubilees. 49 years plus a year of Jubilee. How, how long has it been? It's been this many Jubilees. We have to get out a calculator. They did not, because that is how they counted. All of a sudden, Daniel 9 becomes a little less confusing in that regard. But we're in chapter 10 and 12 at this point. So as we leave chapter 9 and move to chapter 10, if I were to put myself in Daniel's shoes, I could imagine how blessed he was to have the scroll of Jeremiah, to have the words of the prophets. Why? Because he knew that God would fulfill his promise to Israel, but it did not look like it in his present day. And so he's looking
the, the weeks and the months. And then we enter into chapter 10 where we see more beastly nations. <laughs> These chapters, chapters 10 through 12, again, enumerate the cycles of beastly Gentile oppression through various kingdoms and up to the final northern beastly Gentile kingdom to oppress the people of God and oppose the God of Israel. These northern Gentile beasts is reminiscent of the Gentile beast from Babylon. Now, you guys all studied Jeremiah. Why is a northern Gentile beast reminiscent of Babylon? Because that's the direction that they invaded Israel from in Babylon. Shockingly, I read somewhere in the book of Revelation that there would be a mystery Babylon. I wonder where they get this imagery from. And if we tie it to Revelation, you would be surprised to find out that Daniel chapter 12 even includes the resurrection of the dead and God's establishment of his kingdom. Mm. We're going to see these patterns time and time again as we read the scripture. These chapters are strongly related to the vision in chapter 2. And realize we have several weeks till we get to 10 through 12. And you're going to see that these chapters are referring back and tying into each other and there's continuity between them. We're about to go through some key dates in the time of, of Daniel. Some things that you might want to write down. We have some more slides. I want to assure you they were not easy to put together. But before we do that, this is an unusual study for us. We've never talked this much without the scripture itself speaking for us. Is there anybody in here honest enough to say you did not complete the book of Daniel when we assigned it to you? Okay. Well, that's why this is a little difficult. But if you were pouring over the book of Daniel over the last seven or eight days, then these might have already answered some questions for you. We are trying to move away from telling you what to think and start to tell you how to think about it, to tell you what you might consider as an interpretive key. We want you to be able to put these things together from a broader narrative. We're, of course, going to go through every chapter in detail. Like always, there'll be hundreds of law prophets writing strings on everything that we say and highly footnoted notes for you. But we do not want you to get into the habit of simply waiting to hear what we think it means. So we had you read it first, and we're suggesting to you some themes that we have already stumbled on that we think are unified. Now, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, which would be great, to be in either category, what we don't want you to be is so uninformed that you don't have the basis to agree or disagree with them. That way, when we get to the chapter and we're going through it, it's not just a fine-sounding argument for you. It's something that you have been wrestling with. It's something that you have been fighting for revelation on. And then what we say will either have merit for you or it won't, but at least you won't just be parroting something that you've heard and running out and misrepresenting us to the world. Yeah. 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 Let's go through some key things in Daniel's life. Yeah. So by the end of the evening, we're going to work through how we are going to grow in our insight. Amen. I wanted to take a minute to walk through two slides with you beforehand. This is just going to give you an idea of the man Daniel himself. So about 612 B.C., Nineveh falls to an alliance of Babylon and Media. Okay, this is background to the things that are happening in Jeremiah. At one point, Assyria was dominant, Babylon is rising, and they bring down the capital of Assyria. Do you know who is around at this point? Daniel. Daniel is. 
was about eight years old or so during this event in time frame. When we say eight years old, we give us a plus or minus four years, okay? I mean, we're, we're fighting with a lot of work to figure this out. But it gives you an idea. Not yet a man, but old enough to have some memories. You can think through the kings who are reigning during this time frame. About 609, Pharaoh Necho leads an army against Assyria. Josiah fights against Pharaoh Necho and gets killed in the process. Daniel's about 11 at this point. So he remembers the last good king of Israel dying in battle shortly before Babylon taking over. 606 BC, Battle of Carchemish. Nebuchadnezzar versus Pharaoh. Jehoiakim is bound with shackles and taken to Babylon. So these are some enormous battles that determine the landscape of the biblical world. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar crushed Pharaoh. He was victorious and started moving further southward. And then he takes Jehoiakim to reigning puppet in place, and takes him away in shackles. Daniel's about 14 years old at this point. Somewhere around a uh, bar mitzvah. Yeah. A man who's just getting to the place where he's able to read the word of God for himself and be responsible to the word on his own. So what that means is that at the age that he's arriving at Babylon, he's just barely entering adulthood, and presumably Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his friends, around the same age, during the first siege and the exile of Jerusalem. Chris, how old are you? 15. So imagine Chris having to make a choice between the king of his locality and the king of the universe and under that kind of pressure. Stand up, Chris. Stand on a chair so everybody can see you. The opening chapters of Daniel, that's what you need to picture. Does that change things for you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. If that is required of a teenage Jewish boy that has received special revelation vis-a-vis the Tanakh, what, pray tell, is required of you? You can sit down now, Chris. <laughs> Our next slide is going to carry this forward a little bit. So in here you can see some repeated information, but if you pick up at the third bullet, Daniel's in his mid-teens when he is set to be, dictates and interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue. So this is after the training time frame of three years. Then we have him interpreting for the king of the known world when every other man of wisdom is going to die if it's not interpreted. So Chris, you got three years and you're going to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and interpret this dream. Okay, so put that in perspective for a minute so that you feel this. Charlie is now Nebuchadnezzar. It's not fair, but he's got, he's got the best beard for him. And uh, Charlie has the power to kill Chris. And quite a long history of doing things like that. Yes. Ne- Nebuchadnezzar is not such a sweet guy. Uh, he was not sleepy as a leader or falling asleep in conferences. He, he killed people. Yeah. And so Chris is really excited to say, hey, hey Charlie, Nebuchadnezzar. You were that great head of gold. That part was good. But it has to be followed with, uh, by the way, there's going to be a rock cut out of the mountain that's my nation that's going to crush all of you. Can you, can you begin to imagine that? <laughs> and yet, that is the biblical historical record. You guys ready for this next time jump? So at about 14, he's taken into captivity, approximately three years of training, Then he has to interpret the dream with his friends and bring it before Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel's about 81 years old when he confronts Belshazzar before Babylon falls to the Persians in Daniel 5. 
He's an old man now. Is that a lot of years? Quite a difference, don't you think? Yes. We just went from Chris Hall to Fred Hall. <laughs> and you can see why Daniel's standing there and he's like, I've been around a while and let's just be honest, you kind of suck as a king. You're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> this is after he's received the dream of the four beasts in chapter 7 and the vision of the ram and goat in chapter 8. He's analogous in some ways, which we'll cover at some point in time, but to John, that may have been the youngest, but then is very old seeing things about the future, and he's able to stand on it. The parallels between John the Revelator and Daniel are rather astounding when it comes down to it, and we'll, we'll probably get more into that. Yeah. So as Nick enumerated earlier, you heard he was praying, he was fasting, he set himself to pouring through the word. Well, he was praying, fasting, and crying out before God at 81 years old in Daniel 9, approximately, give or take a few years. An 81-year-old fasting, weeping, reading the scripture, and crying out to God, and that is when he receives a vision of the 70 weeks. Think about what he has seen in his life at that point. He saw the king of, uh, of Israel, Josiah, die when he was just a boy. He saw all Israel mourn. What do you think it meant to him to know that there was a coming king that would restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay. I, I've known a, a lot of men in their 80s at this point. I've been in ministry a while. I've never known one to fast unless he had a medical test he had to fast for. <laughs> Our last one hurts my feelings a little bit. Daniel's about 83 years old when he's thrown, thrown oh, into the lion's den. Can anybody empathize with the fact that if they didn't eat you, still being thrown in the hole at 83 years old was not comfortable? He's walked with the Lord faithfully through each of these kingships, and he's put in a position where the king actually doesn't want to do this to him, but God has allowed this time of Jacob's trouble for him, and it's producing honor and reference towards the king of kings as a result. Now, our last bullet here, Daniel is probably in his mid-80s, when he has the closing vision of Daniel 10, <laughs> 11, and 12, on, and now. sees the resurrection of the dead, Michael stand up and his people yeah. rise before. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Does that give you all some perspective? Oh, yeah. yes. yes. Look, we took a unique approach tonight for a reason, and we're not going to belabor this too terribly much longer, because we actually think that what's going to come out of this study will be a joint effort. We think you'll share all good things with your teachers. We think as you wrestle with some of these precepts, God will open up to this body things that are the Lord's precious thoughts that, that maybe we've never heard. But I do want to forecast a few things for y'all. Is that okay? Yeah. Yes. Even if it's not, it's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> By the end of our study in Daniel, you should clearly understand why John, another Jewish man, received special <clears throat> revelation while standing in captivity regarding the final manifestation of the satanic Gentile beast that would be against the people of God and which would be followed by the establishment of the kingdom of God. Those parallels will become quite clear. We'll be exploring the Gentile beastly efforts of men like Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll explore the Gentile beastly efforts of Rome, both correct thoughts about it and some that you should strongly question. (laughs) 
And we'll even look at the Gentile beastly efforts of an Islamic caliphate as we study the prophetic pattern and results in the kingdom of God being established on earth. Daniel, well, he's in the writings. And he shows us how to live faithfully in the process that will bring about the consolation of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom of God Hallelujah. on earth. I want to tell you in advance, there will be a physical throne of David on the earth. Yeah. The very same one that was told to Jesus' mama he would sit on and he has not yet sat on. <laughs> there is a repeating emphasis on the people who received the revelation that must go through the furnace. Now, Egypt was a furnace that is a metaphor. In the book of Daniel, the Jews were thrown into a furnace that was not a metaphor. That they also must go through the lion's den. In Daniel 6, the lion's den is not a metaphor. It's a very real thing. Yeah. Might be what Peter is talking about when he says, our enemy is prowling about like a roaring lion. Of course, we have no fear of him in the same way that Daniel didn't have a fear Amen. if we're standing in the right place with our God. How the Jewish people must endure the beast to establish the kingdom of God on earth. That's a theme that carries from Daniel all the way through the book of Revelation. And whether the Gentiles fall on the stone that is Messiah of Israel or the stone that is the Messiah of Israel falls on the Gentiles, the result is the same. The beast will be shattered. The beast will be crushed. The Gentile nation's power, their trampling on Jerusalem will be broken. And the kingdom of God will be established on earth in a very real, very physical fashion. Amen. Christians are way too superstitiously ethereal about this. When you view heaven as somewhere else, you are divorced from the biblical text. Yeah. When you see all of these events simply as some kind of weird spiritual fulfillment, you are divorced from the biblical text. We are trying as pork-eating Gentiles to get back to the actual truth of the biblical text. Yeah. We want to give you a few beautiful hints in our direction. Justin's going to assign a scripture. All right, let's have Daniel 2.35 read by Chris Hall. Oh, yeah. Stand up and read it like Daniel. Without any thought that he was a eunuch and only that he was unique. <laughs> Daniel 2.35 Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now we're going to find out in the coming weeks that the iron, clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold represented actual kingdoms. And that the rock that struck it is an actual kingdom. But we're also going to learn that the over-spiritualization of the prophecies of Daniel has caused many. It's caused us. It's caused me. Me. It's caused many theologians, many pastors to misinterpret these statements. The Peshat of these verses predicts something more than the rise and spread of a spiritual kingdom. Many have talked about this passage being fulfilled in the Brit Kadashah as a spiritual kingdom. And it's simply not true. 
If this it is, was true, then they wouldn't have said in Acts, are you at that time yes. going to restore right. the kingdom? Right. <laughs> they predict something more than that. They predict something more than a spiritual kingdom in the midst of earthly kingdoms. They actually foretell the establishment of a physical Jewish kingdom which breaks the Gentile beastly kingdoms to pieces. This means that the kingdom of God on earth in Israel is a real physical entity and not an ethereal mystical one. They cannot be that if there are still Gentile beastly kingdoms afoot. This fact only ought to sober anyone who doubts that there is a time limit to the age we live in. The, The worst thought that we as Christians can have is that the time that we live in is just going to get better and better and better and better until the Messiah comes to reign on earth. If you're a non-millennialist, you're going to have a real problem with listening to this recording. And if the Civil War or World War I or World War II or the Vietnam era or our most recent events in Afghanistan didn't unwrench you from that position, you're divorced from reality. Okay? Things are clearly not getting better, but how we stand in our historical context is knowing the certainty of a real physical kingdom established by a Jewish Messiah with his throne in Israel physically on the ground is the biblical hope. It always has been, and it is what we have become sharers in, not replacements for, sharers in. And you can't share with somebody who is not there. So we can have this with Israel, but we will never have it without Israel. At this point in our study, we'd like to quote a man named Sir Robert Anderson. A delightful Scottish man. He's actually Lord Anderson. You know, he was knighted, wasn't he? Yeah. Does anybody know so the was difference? Elton John, though. That kind of degraded the whole thing. <laughs> it was many years later, so I think it's okay. Okay. Uh, the, the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s was when uh, Lord Robert Anderson lived. And he worked for the police force. He worked for the Scotland Yard. Uh, he has all kinds of interesting things about his life. But the most interesting is that... He was a scholar and a lover of the word of God. Amen. It's what he says about the nature of prophecy that we find interesting. And we do because we haven't heard this from a modern scholar in a long time. Amen. So this is about the nature of prophecy and its fulfillment. And the purpose of this quote, just to get it out there before we read it, is to keep us from allegorizing prophecy to our own detriment. So keep that in mind as we read. If anyone will learn the connection between prophecy and its fulfillment, let him read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and compare it with the story of the Passion. So vague and figurative that no one could have acted out the drama it foretold. Otherwise, if you read Isaiah 53 before the crucifixion, it would be very difficult to understand what it was talking about. And by the way, nobody wanted to act out that drama, did they? Yeah, no. But yet, so definite and clear that once fulfilled, Mm -hmm. the simplest child can recognize its scope and meaning. If then the event 
which constitutes the epic of the 70th week must be as pronounced and certain as Nehemiah's commission and Messiah's death. It is of necessity still future. Why is this quote so important to us as we dive into Daniel? We're drawing your attention to this advice because it does not seem likely that the events prophesied in Daniel could have been fulfilled in any century up to this point. And therefore, it's still up for debate among the serious biblical student. Nobody during our time right now can point back and say, I am confident. Just like I'm confident that Isaiah chapter 53 was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, I'm confident that these prophecies in Daniel have already been fulfilled because it's so obvious, it's so clear. Daniel is one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible to date for the reason that it is not yet fulfilled. Come on. When an event is fully fulfilled, it ought to be as obvious to us as the connection between Isaiah 53 and the crucifixion of Messiah. To sit on that for just a second, it is a matter of opinion which historical elements of Daniel may or may not have already been fulfilled. It is a matter of fact that they are not completely fulfilled. All you have to do is look around. The plain meaning of the words dictate that. And if you approach this book like that, not trying to cram it into a system already given to us by some commentator, and instead, as a body, we approach this with a circumcised heart, we're saying that we're still open to discovery. We're saying that we are still learning, and we want you to do it with us, and so we're avoiding unnecessary conclusions in the hope that God will speak to us as a community about some things that we genuinely are wrestling with. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, Mm. and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Amen. So originally, I love this because Shammah stood his ground, and he beat enemy and they won and there was a great victory and we're not going to get into a word study on lentils but I always refer to them as beans and as we were studying I saw the scripture in a new light to others it may have seemed a little better than just a patch of weeds this field of lentils, this field of beans and not worth fighting for, why stand your ground in it, but it was precious to Shama as the portion or a portion of the divinely given inheritance That's why he stood his ground, because God gave it to him. And moreover, 
the enemy might have used it as a rallying ground from which to capture strongholds. He stood his ground because God gave it to him. And he was not willing to give it up, not even an inch. Yet those are things that God gave to Israel and Shammah was entrusted with protecting. It's much like the details of the book of Daniel and the details of the biblical text as a whole. It is all of intrinsic value if it was given from God. Come on, that's if true. it came from him, it has divine value and it's worth fighting for. Yes. And moreover, the statement which is discarded and which may seem of no importance may prove to be a link in the chain of truth on which we are depending for eternal life. In now, other words, just because a commentator didn't see some sentence in Daniel as of particular relevance, doesn't mean that you can discard it any more than Shama did that field of lentils. Every syllable is God breathed. Amen. Yeah. And if we will fight to understand every syllable, it may prove to unlock things that our very existence depends upon. Come on. Come on. Is there anybody that will join us in the fight for every inch of God's yes. sacred text? Yes. Yes. I'm going to read 2 Peter 1 21 to you. My father will take over commenting from here. We are working to develop a special kind of character in this church. That every one of us would be fostering revelation in one another that shows up in our deeds. Like men, like Daniel. Yeah. It's going to happen. Because we're going to need to. 2 Peter 1.21 For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit of Jesus? Yes. yes. Then you are filled with the Spirit of prophecy. I was praying for one of your pastors the other day, and God gave me this word out of the study of Daniel. I noticed some details in Daniel that are different, and now I wanted to speak them to you as a congregation. We, as a pastorate, want to encourage you that you have been given the spirit of prophecy. Now, Peter described prophecy as but men spoke from God as they were carried along. And this is how we usually think of prophecy. Characterized by a formula. Thus saith the Lord. Meaning that the Lord is putting his words in your mouth and like you almost have no control over them. Charismatics, we do this a lot. It's true, Isaiah certainly spoke like that. He began most of his chapters with, Thus saith the Lord. Jeremiah certainly had that kind of prophetic speech. He often made a statement and then said, The Lord says. <laughs> Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they all contain that formula. What I couldn't believe in the study of Daniel, we've already noted. And it's that Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, although Jesus knows very well Daniel is in the writings. He did it in Matthew 24, 15, which is where we open tonight. And nowhere, not once in the book of Daniel, does Daniel say, thus saith the Lord, or so saith the Lord, or the Lord hath said. Is that shocking? Yes. I mean, it was to me. You know, I've got my logos working, got PC study Bible out. I got to the original manuscripts. I'm like, surely it's a trans... No, it's not a translation issue. He never does it. 
And there's something profound in this for you. Instead, Daniel prayed and the Lord revealed. Daniel dreamed and recorded what he saw. Daniel read and he was given insight. Daniel was close to the Lord and the revealer of mysteries revealed his secrets to Daniel. I believe you have the very same spirit and the very same prophetic anointing in you. I'm sure that many of you will be able confidently at times in your life to say, Thus saith the Lord! And you'll have those moments. But I wonder if Daniel's method might not be more efficacious for us. That we pray about what the Word says. That we read what the Word says. That we're so concentrating on the Word that we're dreaming about what the Word says and He will reveal His mysteries to us. I'm not against commentaries. I own more than all of you. (laughs) I read them more than all of you. Every once in a while, I agree with them. But I don't want to lean on the best-sounding argument that someone else has. I want to lean on the Spirit of Jesus. Daniel 5.11 and Daniel 5.14 And Daniel 9.22, they all indicate that Daniel had wisdom and insight like unto the gods. I genuinely believe this is the way that John wrote the book of Revelation. Because do you know what John never says in the book of Revelation? Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) He just had insight from studying the Tanakh and was given a vision as he was engaging the word of God. If we fight for every word in the book of Daniel, and we ask the God of Israel to reveal his mysteries to us in response to our unified corporate prayer, if we meditate on the text until we are dreaming about it, And then begin to record what he has shown us. If we will read the text with an open heart, free from preconceived framework. I believe the God of Israel will give us insight. And we will all make progress together. In asking the right questions. So that God himself can give us the right answers. Instead of defending positions that weren't really yours in the first place. If we can approach this book like that, and this is our introduction to it, then there's no telling what he will show us. He likes to reveal things to the little guys. And friends, as much as we might like to compare ourselves with someone else and see ourselves superior in that comparison, Paul said when we do that, we're not wise. I just want to get right out there and say it. We're on quite a few continents, and we have a few churches now, and some things are start, starting to go our way in visions that are 30 years old coming to pass now, but we are very much the little guy. We are very much insignificant in the world except that we are filled with the spirit of prophecy. Amen. And if we will pray, he'll speak. Amen. If we will search the text, He'll reveal. 
If we will meditate on it and dream about it, he will show us unspeakable things. So I'm not against commentators. I'm not against other teachers. And you can download the FAI app if you want and get all that you can get. You can read Dake. You can do anything else you want to do, and those are great resources. But I wonder what it will rob you of. They already know what they know, and they may or may not be right. I would like to see what God tells us. In our closing, I want you to know that what we do in preparation for these studies, we did it through, I, I, I've done it my whole life, is we read the text through many, many times. We then pray through the tabernacle. Then we write down our thoughts and we look to see if there is a genuine, genuine codified message coming forward between us as a team. And then... We search it against the other parts of the word to see whether it's consistent in every area of the Bible. Only after we do those things do we consult anybody else's work. And when we consult the work, we do not give it preference to what we believe God may have shown us. We only use it as a caution. If we came to the conclusion that Daniel was 20 and everybody else says he's 90, we, we might need to go back and check. But who's to say that they were right and we were wrong. We only use it as a caution. We're inviting you into a genuine study on the book of Daniel instead of a lecture series on the book of Daniel. This is the last night that we'll share with you more of our thoughts than the word. We just wanted to start somewhere. And by the way, this is the product of a few weeks of simply reading as a group through the book of Daniel. We're pretty confident in what the Lord has shown us, and yet that doesn't make it past the test. We want to see what the Lord shows our brothers. Yeah. Will you all stand to your feet? Pastors, we turn this meeting over to you. It should be very exciting to you what pastor just said and what our pastors just spoke to us here this evening. I hope you take it seriously that you are now part of the study team. Instead of coming and just sitting and listening, being in awe or dazing off, whatever it is that we're doing here, that you are a part of what God wants to speak to us about collectively. I encourage you, if you're a single young man, there should not be one single young man in here that does not read through the chapters that we're about to head into in the next week. I also think that of our single young women. I also think that of husbands and wives with little children. I also think that of little children if they can read. Getting involved in the Word. Uh, Sydney, would you put up Psalm 119? Verse 18. This is under the section that's entitled Gimel. This is how we should walk in the days that are before us. Open my eyes. Everybody say that with me. Open my eyes. That we may see the wonderful things that are in your law. 
let's have our faith almost like Daniel's already, the book of Daniel's already starting to do in us what it's supposed to. It's supposed to direct our strength. It's in the Ketuvim. It's already starting to do that here in this place. Give us a strengthening of our hope. Not only that we might learn something, but that God might reveal something to you. Say it again. Open my eyes. Open Open my eyes. This should be a resounding prayer in us daily, hourly, as we are reading the word. As you are getting together to fellowship, you are opening the book of Daniel and you're reading together. Can we agree to do that? Yes. Yes. Because you are part of what God wants to reveal to us. Everybody say to us. To us. Isn't a blessing the work that has gone into giving us this introduction? The roadmap of understanding the book of Daniel? Echoing what Pastor Wade said. Let's reciprocate that with a diligence and a desire that God can give us revelation collectively as a body. Breathe into us his spirit of prophecy and share that revelation that will edify us all. God's scripture, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. If you could put that up. This, then, is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. This is how we ought to regard ourselves as a body, as a church, as LCM. The revelations and mysteries that God is giving us are help fortify how we carry out God's will on earth. How we will stand through dark and terrible times and see God's restoration and glory sit upon his people, Israel. So let your hearts grow with courage that you can hear from God. Let your desire and your hunger for the word intensify even more, and God will match it by opening your eyes to see those wonderful things. Briefly, I want to highlight Numbers 11.29 to you. Joshua comes running to Moses with a jealousy for the man that had poured into his life and a desire for him to hold the prophecy and the revelation. But what Moses said was, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. We tell you collectively as your pastors that that is our desire for you. Not that revelation would remain in our hands or just in a select few of the strongest, that the spirit that is within you you would learn to operate in freely. That it would look like Daniel in a way that is uh, something tangibly we can all feel. God's favor on that method. What he was speaking to us tonight about is how we will have insight into the future by replicating the same kind of life as men like Daniel. We want to tell each of you that Juan in the back that Jaron, that all the way around this room, God will give you insight that will aid the gaps in the walls around you, that will strengthen this collective house and this collective body. I promise you it's not haphazard because it's easier that we're going to be covering concepts out of Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah all at one time. God will speak through this congregation and we will build the wall together.
want to put down some fears in the room, our encouragement is that you engage with the text. If the first thing that pops in your mind is I'm not very smart or I do not know enough, our God is faithful. His spirit is in you. He will reveal mysteries to those who earnestly seek him, not those who are the most qualified or have the largest brains. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we want for you guys. Taste and see that he is good. You are watching our lives uh, and the goodness that is coming out of it because the Lord is revealing his word to us. And we want that for this whole body, every single member of LCM. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord. You, his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Yeah. It's about fearing him and drawing near to him. I promise you, he will fill your hands with revelation. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Mom, we are here to help you outlast the lions. And as you seek him, he will make sure that you lack nothing for fellowship in this body, for revelation and direction in your life, for your marriages, for your parenting, for those lawsuits, for those financial issues. In every area of your our lives, as we seek his word, he will reveal mysteries to us of his divine plan for the whole world and daily how to walk rightly. It's the gimel that Pastor Wade was talking about. His word is sufficient to guide our lives and his heavenly growth. From the beginning of the night tonight, we've been encouraging you guys, don't just take it as truth because it's coming out of our mouths. You go, be like a Berean and study what you are learning here tonight. Go and dive into Daniel and pray and ask the Lord to stir up that same spirit of prophecy in all of us so that we can begin to learn together. You know, there's going to be a product to this that we find in our last scripture of the night, which is Daniel 2.47. Read this with me. The king. The king. Like the king of the known planet said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. This is the king that we serve, who is a revealer of mysteries. Let me tell you, there's a reason why it's time. The Lord wants to stir up the prophetic inside of each one of us. Yeah. He wants to stir up the prophetic in you, so that when you're reading Daniel, when you're reading his word, when you are studying, his very spirit will confirm the truth of what you have been learning and reveal greater mysteries to you along the way. Can we pray as we conclude tonight that the Lord would begin to steer, stir up the spirit of prophecy in each one of us? Come on, let's pray together. Mighty King, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Lord of Israel, Father, we seek you tonight, mighty King. Revealer of mysteries, we call upon your name tonight, mighty God. Father, we say thank you. Thank you for your word tonight, Lord God. Thank you for opening up our eyes, Lord. Thank you for even tonight beginning to reveal 
continue in this, Lord. Lord, that we would not grow colder, but that we would grow hotter in the days ahead, Lord God. Lord, that you would help us to stir up and to kindle a spirit of prophecy and insight, Lord God. That same spirit that Daniel and his three companions had, Lord God. The same spirit that lives in us today. Father, we say tonight that we are confident. Lord, we are fearless in this mighty God. And we are excited, Lord, that as we dive into your word to see what your good spirit reveals to us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.